All right. Welcome to this week's episode of Going Live with Good Soil, where Matt and I talk about macro markets, Tesla, and the other stocks we like, Roblox, Lemonade, Rocket Lab. We go over lots of Q&A, and you know, sooner or later, I'm sure we'll have another stock in our uh, repertoire we'll be comfortable talking a lot about, but uh, there's only uh, so much time to research, and uh, you know, that's sort of, sort of the stocks in our our we're focused on right now, but the macro markets are a big deal right now. That's driving the market more than anything. And, uh, yeah, format is, uh, I stated before, this has been recorded on Twitter spaces and YouTube live. Uh, sorry for starting an hour late today. We'll go back to our normal time next week again. Um, and, uh, Matt, what do you, how think, first of all, congratulations, Matt, you have a new uh, addition to your family. Thank you. Yeah, we had uh, baby number six was born uh, early last Wednesday morning. So sleep is at a premium right now and I'm not getting much of it. So apologies in advance if I'm uh, mo a little more incoherent than usual this week. Yeah, but, uh, no worries. Yeah, things are going well. Yeah, it's a big deal. You're doing your part. Six six kids now, right? Six young uh, Smiths, right? Is that about right? Yeah, we're, we're like reversing, uh, you know, population decline, at least here. I think... I posted sometime a while ago, like, you know, the, the like uh, birth rate or fertility by country. And I was like, I think my wife and I are like the like second only to like Ghana or some one of the African countries. I think, like, you know, an average rate of like seven <laughs> kids or something, seven yeah. kids. Yeah. So like we're just below that, that like top of the class. But you are know, you trying to get above well that? for Americans? You think you're going to you're going to try to get above Ghana? No, no time soon. That's for sure. My wife and I are both just like, all right, time out. You know, we got time out. Our, yeah. I mean, we have like a 16 month old and a three month old too. So we've got like three oh my really, really young kids. Um, yeah. You know, plus the newborn. So it's like just a little thing like getting breakfast ready is uh, quite the ordeal. Yeah. <laughs> but oh anyways, I'm, well, I'm glad you got an hour off here. To this is probably like a nice hour <laughs> break to 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 do this with me. So, it, it does uh, feel like thanks. a luxury to to be working yeah. actually. Yeah. All right. Well, probably about everyone's joined. A lot of people have joined. Let's start with, I guess, the macro markets here. And I uh, put in the title, the Putin-Ukraine conflict, because I feel like it's not really a Russia. It's more like Putin single-handedly is trying to make this happen. And, um, you know, it, 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 you know, lots of people are becoming, you know, experts on this topic or studying hard. And, you know, we're, we're doing the same, but really our expertise is about the, the markets and, you know, stocks, uh, if you could, you know, the markets to a lesser degree than individual stocks, I would say, but the macro markets, you know, we like to talk about and, you know, this is definitely impacting the macro markets. I mean, we just have seen the volatility and the swings in the market been pretty crazy every day, up or down two or 3%. And, um, you know, today there was a reversal after Biden's talk and, I think as we talk right now, markets are up. S and P five hundred's up one percent. Nasdaq's up about one point one percent, but it was higher just about ten minutes ago. Like two, per, it dropped like one percent in the last like ten minutes. It feels like so. It's very volatile, um, and it, it might continue to be. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's so much kind of fear right now. I mean, if things escalate further, you could imagine a scenario where. Um, you know, I, I, th I think the big thing on everyone's mind from a like markets perspective is, uh, you know, energy prices. So if, if, you know, things escalate and you've got something of a, you know, trade war with with high sanctions, um, you know, and, and Russian natural gas, you know, is kind of banned, then you could be in a scenario where, you know, oil prices, which are already high, could go even even higher uh, in natural gas prices. Um, are also really high right now and that affects you know obviously like heating which is really important especially in europe like in germany they're, they're highly dependent on that uh but also it's natural gas is used for electricity production so uh, you, you could have in a in a macro environment where inflation concerns were very high kind of back in january when people weren't anticipating this kind of conflict you know you could be just kind of adding gasoline on onto the fire of inflation concerns and that could really cause, you know, I think runaway issues for, for the economy. So I, I think that's, uh, no, I hear you just fine. Yeah. Oh, Matt, Alex saying, okay. 
Let me know if that's better. Okay. Um, yeah, the audio so, is good on uh, Twitter Spaces, but Matt is trying to get his audio yeah. back on uh, YouTube Live here. So far, everyone's saying audio is gone for Matt. Um, yeah. Matt, how's Alex's your audio it's, it's good now, according okay, to good. Alec. So, okay. yeah. So, you know, anyway, I think the, the concern is really just that, like, you, you've got, you're, you potentially could have um, inflation really run away from you. And, and, you know, that's in a, in a market, which is already a little bit, you know, teetering on edge and um, concerns about needing to raise interest rates to get inflation under, under wraps uh, that could, you know, be kind of the, the, the hair that, or the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of like the overall economy rebounding. So uh, I think you're seeing, you know, we, we've had this trend of risk off for the last three months. And I think, we all thought we'd sort of bottomed out, but um, I think with with concerns like we have right now, that you know it could continue to play out where where you may be in a more of a risk off environment because there's so much uncertainty around how this could could pit, uh, play out, and and a lot of the experts I'm hearing from don't really see um, a a very viable path for both sides to kind of back down in a in a like, mutually beneficial way. Yeah, so what, I mean, I think. Thinking? I think a lot of the volatility in times like this comes, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, macro market uncertainty and the normal it's the volatility is sort of exacerbated because there's no registered market maker. There's hardly any, you know, the high frequency trading firms like Citadel and Two Sigma and those they've replaced the uh, market makers, the registered market makers uh, for being liquidity providers in the markets. Right. And so, they're, they don't play by the same rules. They're not registered in the same way that market makers were traditionally registered, having to be required to put on two-sided quotes of a, of a bid and an offer on every stock or even in options quotes, you know, index options, everything, you know. And so you have this massive loss of liquidity providers in times of uncertainty like this because the market makers would be still required to be providing these two-sided quotes even if they're a little bit wider they'd still be they'd still be volatile but not quite as volatile as it is as you see these days i think in, in times like this because all the high frequency traders to do there's too much risk for them like they're used to making a couple pennies on every trade or half a penny or fractions of pennies you know things are quoted in like hundreds of pennies they're used to making bang bang quick trades for a couple pennies here and there and just making tons of money on that. But when, when, when times like this happen, it's too risky. They just turn off their quotes. And, uh, I think we saw that initially in the flash crash of what was that? Like 2010, I think it, it was maybe. 11. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then there was another kind of miniature one in like 2016, I think, or 15, you know, it, 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 so there was, you know, you see these, and there could be another flash crash here, you know, it could happen again any day now, I think that's what we're worried about. And we put on some hedges, we talked about a little bit last week. We kind of extended, changed them for, you know, instead of expiring like in a week from here now, we changed them to expire like in a month from now and just put a, you know, uh, a lower strike price on it just because the next several weeks, we just feel the markets could remain volatile. I mean, the stability of the market moving, you know, 1% or less per day on most days, I feel like is gone for a while until there's some kind of macro market. And, you know, certainty backs and you need the geopolitical situation and inflation risks and the Fed policy all to kind of be predictable again before I feel like the high frequency trading firms who have taken over the role as liquidity providers feel comfortable in coming back to the markets in a, you know, you know, staunch way where they normally have. So that's my read on the situation on why things could be volatile, very volatile for a little while here. You know, I could be wrong. Yeah, that's just my suspicion. It's it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the the flash crash. I mean, I remember watching that in real time. I was on a Bloomberg terminal when that was going on, and it was just like the craziest to see. Um, but what you had out of there, I remember there were a couple stocks I think which traded for like a cent or something like that. Like maybe it was like Procter and Gamble. There were a couple trades that went for like a penny. It was just like insane. And so they ended up actually having to to cancel those trades. Um, and now we're in this environment where there's crazy volatility not not only in equities but in commodities as well. So um, just yesterday, you know, the London Metal Exchange had to cancel a bunch of orders be, uh, for nickel because the price has doubled in, in just a couple yeah. of hours. Yeah. And, and so, like, you know, you've got input prices, commodity prices kind of going crazy. You know, you've got wild volatility there as well as yeah. in, in, you know, like the places where you'd expect to see more volatility historically and, and like, you know, yeah. tech and growth names and uh, the equities market. So, um, yeah, I think it's. Things are with the nickel thing, very rapid I heard, pace right now. 
Yeah, I heard on Bloomberg earlier this morning, Bloomberg News, that there was a, there's a Chinese uh, investor who was short 100,000 of the nickel contracts on the London Metals Exchange. You know, 100,000 of them, and the price yeah. went up to 100,000 per ton. So he was short 100,000 tons of it, I guess, and the price went up to $100,000 per ton or contracts. I don't know, but, uh, you know, that's the type of thing that, you know, no one can, you know, that's like the type of, black swan event for that bank that's like representing that client or that i don't know how it works on the london metal exchange but someone's got to pay for that somehow and uh, i guess they're canceling a bunch of trades already <laughs> so <laughs> i don't know what's going to happen there but there's a lot it reminds me of when oil went negative that one day and there's just some weird anomalies going on with the the macro markets right now commodities it's affecting like this and in, until we get to back to some kind of predictability, I mean, the geopolitical thing, the, the Ukraine or Putin, Russia, you know, conflict is certainly taking center stage right now. And I did see we did see just as we got on here, there's, a, I guess, a quote uh, Zelensky said to ABC, quote, I have cooled down on NATO. NATO is not prepared to accept Ukraine. So. I don't know if that helps give, you know, provide some kind something for for potentially for russia or putin to say oh we we can now exit because you know um ukraine's you know not interested in nato anymore so i don't know if that starts the bridge for that or not but i think that could be a way out where the, the geopolitical risks kind of subside over time if if there could be some kind of path to a resolution here i just don't know what what other way there is for a path in the next you know in the foreseeable future though yeah, I mean, that certainly kind of opens the <clears throat> the door to some sort of resolution. But I, I mean, it's hard to imagine that you, know, you have both Zelensky and Putin in power um, at, at the end of this. I mean, it, it kind of seems like you're going to have to have, you know, one of them go or like, I, I mean, Putin in particular, it's, it seems from all, all the commentary I've been reading, it seems like um, a lot of this aggression is really to protect his own status. And so if he, you know, let's just say, for, for argument's sake that Ukraine decided to agree not to join NATO and amend their constitution. And, you know, um, I don't think they would give up Crimea. All the Ukraine experts I've spoken to have said that they're, they're not likely to recognize that given the way that their country has been treated right now. Um, but I mean, if, if they can't get to that sort of resolution where they're, you know, offering some sort of uh, significant accommodation to Russia, um, I, I don't know how Putin would kind of accept that and, and say, oh, look, look what we've won. Like, what can he tangibly show the, the Russian people as like the, the, you know, thing that he's got as a, as a result of this really risky endeavor into Ukraine? So I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I hope you're right. And I hope there's there's a, a path to, to back down here. Uh, but I'm not yeah. sure what it is. Well, one encouraging thing I, I did see uh, just this morning, though, was uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping um, finally kind of weighed in with some strong comments saying that you know the goal should really be for both sides to de-escalate and that they would work with both sides to kind of facilitate that uh in any way possible uh but basically seeing kind of prolonging and escalating this this war would lead to you know economic downturn which is not good for any side which you know i think is is a good sign of reason coming from you know the chinese i think a lot of us may have been at least here in the west may have been concerned that china may kind of seek to use this moment to you know strengthen its alliance with Russia or, you know, under, undercut some of the, you know, democracies in, in the West by, you know, strengthening those ties. And so I, I thought yeah. that was a good sign that, uh, you know, China may seek to, to be kind of a, a broker of peace here. Yeah, that would be great if China could step in and help influence, you know, a peace agreement of some sort. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, I thought it was a big deal when uh, the Israeli prime minister, you know, went to visit uh Putin a few days ago and was spending spent a lot of several hours there and then flew immediately to Germany. I, I don't know. I thought there's some kind of diplomatic attempts going on with Putin, at least. And President Xi in China, you know, he might have the best capability to, you know, change or influence Putin. Um, so we'll see. Um, speaking of, you know, Zelensky and and Ukraine, uh, I mean, the last week we saw some news with Elon. Uh, I guess he had a Zoom or Zoom chat with Zelensky. Some of it was recorded, and I saw it on Twitter, a clip of the last, like, 10 seconds of it or something. But he sent um, Starlink uh, to, you know, ton of, tons of Starlink terminals to Ukraine. And even follow up with some tweets saying, like, hey, make sure you camouflage it lightly and stuff. Don't put it near your, you know, keep it, uh, you know, it could be targeted, right? And, and 
So there's a little danger there, uh, not just for Ukrainians using Starlink, uh, which is important. And I think they, they need some internet access when Russia's probably, or Putin's probably trying to shut down all the other internet communications. But it's, you and I talked about it briefly yesterday. This, this greatly increases the key man risk of Elon Musk in our eyes, like at least for the near term future, maybe longer term even. I mean, it seems like Putin and has held grudges and the KGB and they've you know, done all kinds of nasty assassinations on people, you know, they're, they're known for that, you know, and, and we've known that Elon's felt he's been a target for, you know, Russia in the past for disrupting their space industry. But now, now this, what, you know, this is kind of scary that he's getting involved directly. Yeah. I mean, certainly on the, on the one hand, I, you know, just want to commend him for, for, you know, doing that work. I mean, yeah. it's kind of stuck, sticking your neck out there to, um, you know, really provide something that was valuable, you know, that you, the Ukrainians actually asked for. You know, I think sometimes he gets criticized for like, you know, the the like the Thai cave incident, for example. It's just like, oh, like he's just trying to make headlines yeah. and take advantage of the political situation. But like, I, I think what he's actually doing is is trying to help in a way that he can. So I, I do commend him for that. But yeah, it, it certainly comes with some risk. I mean, he's, he's aggravating the Russians for sure. Um, and yeah, I, th I think taking a, an adversarial stance against Putin, you know, has been historically uh, bad for your health for yes, your um, life insurance <laughs> risks. Yeah, yeah. So you, Elon obviously has a, a very good, you know, um, security team, but uh, it does kind of increase the risk in my mind that you know there could be some sort of Musk assassination, uh, especially considering yeah the, the fact that he's undermining their, their space industry so much like you know they were trying to the, the russians were trying to say oh well, good luck maintaining you know the iss without you know the soyuz and elon's like oh actually spacex can do that and, he, and here he is kind of directly intervening in a in a military conflict it's uh i could very much imagine you know that he's on some sort of russian hit list now and yeah um, that's uh that, that is a bit of a, of a of a risk in my mind yeah, I mean, I commend him for sticking his neck out, but in the big, big picture of things, I don't think that was a good idea. You know, if he's trying to make life, you know, human civilization, multiplanetary, you know, and that's what he's trying to do. And if you think about his goal from kind of like, I feel like in my mind, from a first principles point of view, like he's the key man for that too. Like SpaceX, you know, can be, you know, if he, if he was hit by a truck tomorrow or assassinated, like Tesla and SpaceX could survive and do well. But are they going to make life multiplanet? Is SpaceX going to be able to make life multiplanetary, you know, without Elon Musk if something happened to him? I'm not sure. Like, um, and that's the biggest, you know, prize—not prize, but the biggest, you know, benefit to hum humanity. He, he's 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 aiming for, and it, it really is, in my our view. I mean, in the big picture, and to to somehow, you know, send some Starlink terminals over to Ukraine and then get offed by KGB agents, you know, six months later, it's not worth it in my mind for him to be doing that. So I'm worried, you know, I, I hope he doesn't speak out too much in, in situations that are, could be dangerous for his personal safety. Um, you know, he's a high target on a lot of people's lists. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate when you have people changing the world that they're, uh, you know, high targets for assassination attempts and such, you know, it's, we've seen it in history many times. Um, yeah, for sure. So. Anyway, not to sound so down, hopefully it's still very low probability, but I feel like if it was like a 1% chance, now it's a 5% chance. If it was a 5%, now it's a 20%. Chance. I don't know. It's, it's been increased. Um, so hopefully it's still very low, but uh, you know, it's been increased, I, I'd say for sure. So um it, on top of that, Elon also commented uh, on ramping up oil and gas, you know, as fast as possible and nuclear too, you know, just for, uh, you know, national security reasons. And I think he makes a lot of sense there with that. And, you know, I'm not sure that gets him on a hit list or anything. It's unpopular, but I don't think, I'm not sure many people, maybe some crazies out there, but there's no one like Putin with KGB, you know, resources trying to assassinate him because of that comment. But it certainly, I felt like was very controversial for him to say that by a lot of people. But I, I agree with that. I mean, just in the near term, if you're shutting Russia Russia down and all the resources that they offer to the world, then yeah, we better ramp up our own oil and gas and nuclear to be less dependent on other parts of the world. I mean, what were your thoughts? You have you have a lot of thoughts on this, I bet, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I work. I spent a lot of time in in the energy industry, you know, on the renewable side, but I also you know worked on on. Uh, some natural gas plants as well, as well as uh, 
a smaller coal plant at one point. So I'm pretty familiar with kind of the the economics of, of each each of the different kind of fuel types out there, and you know the strengths and limitations of, of all of them. And you know, I think when you think about the cost of energy, you know, we tend to get like a bill that just doesn't move very much. But in wholesale markets, um, in most wholesale markets, I should say, the, the kind of clearing cost for all electricity is um, typically set at like the marginal price for a natural gas plant. So there's a, I, 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 let me know if I nerd out on this too much, but you know, essentially there's like um, a physical characteristic of gas plants that's called like the heat rate. And it's essentially how, mm. how efficient is this plant at, at converting natural gas into electricity. Um, and so for a somewhat um, efficient natural gas plant, it may be like a, a heat rate of seven. And so essentially what you do is you take the, the heat rate, and you multiply that by the cost of gas and that gets you an energy output. So if when gas was, you know, $2 an MMBTU and you have a seven heat rate, you could get $14 you know, electricity, $14 per megawatt hour, which is, you know, pretty reasonable. Uh, you know, but now when, when natural gas price is like, you know, five, then you're talking about $35 natural gas. Uh, so, and, and that's the price, the clearing price that essentially gets paid by all renewables, at least in most markets. It kind of depends on how it's structured. Um, so there's a very, um, you know, real direct correlation to energy prices and the cost of natural gas. Um, and it's not the sort of thing that you can just say, all right, well, let's go heavier on wind and solar. Like, great. I agree. We should do that. Um, you know, but if you look at the total generating capacity worldwide, it's, it's roughly seven terawatt hours of, of the entire fleet. Um, and, and wind and solar is only about, you know, 1.4 terawatt hours. And, mm -hmm. and even there, you know, they're, they can't produce all the time. So the actual amount of energy they're generating is, you know, a, a much smaller portion than, you know, like 1.4 over seven. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably only about, you know, 25% of, of that amount. So, you know, I think last year there was about 200 gigawatt hours of wind and solar that was added worldwide. And so we, like, even if you double that, it's like, all right, we got to 400 gigawatt hours. Well, you're like, you're still not even getting close to like seven terawatt hours of the global fleet. So there's, there's no real option in, in the short term to rely more on wind and solar. Um, so I, I think Elon's right that if you do want to kind of avoid um, you know, drastic increases. I mean, imagine if natural gas went to 10, which is a, a reasonable possibility, then you'd have like $70 wholesale electricity costs. And so the, the amount that the, you know, end retail user or, or, you know, industrial user would be paying, you know, would, would go up, go up accordingly. Um, and then it would be getting to the point where it's actually coal becomes more economical than it is. And so then you, you might start bringing coal plants back online, uh, which is not in everyone's best interest. Um, so I, these these markets are really complicated, uh, but I do think that it does make sense to, you know, kind of increase, you know, uh, extraction in the short term of oil and gas. And that's not a popular opinion, but I think um, and, and bring back nuclear as well. I, I do think that's the that's a really smart move. Um, I, you know, I hate to say it, too, because, you know, I worked in renewables. I, you know, I think it's we should be doing all we can to transition to them, um, you know, but I think if we we say all right renewables no matter what and you like you make the cost of electricity go up by 10x then you've got the unintended consequence of like increases in poverty right and so yeah um it, it's not a simple math equation and this is not like there's no free lunch here so you really need to think through all the different variables yeah yeah i'm glad we have you to uh help explain it to you know the details you certainly uh pretty well well uh, informed on this stuff uh you know and understand it from a different perspective working in the industry so um yeah so where do we go from next uh so elon tesla now the tesla business strength uh you know seems to be doing well the stock you know flip-flops with the market volatility obviously but the business itself um seems to be doing very well I and mean, they just released their their numbers for china uh today Fifty-six thousand, i think it was for february and that's you know with chinese new year you know being a huge obvious how long is chinese new year in china by the way matt do you know ah uh, geez i i should know it's been it's been a while i never actually isn't it like really a week celebrated. or two or something isn't, isn't yeah it i think long? it's like a little bit over a week and and there's um yeah. you know a lot of the the workers travel back home to be with family so you know there's like yeah. a decent amount of travel time from wherever they're working to to you know where they were born so it's, do you think uh, they shut the factory down for that week and completely or do you think i haven't looked i know there's like experts out there in the chinese gigafactories that know this like the back of their hand but i feel like they 
they they used to shut the factory down, but maybe it's big enough where they still have some skeleton crews doing something minimal. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know those those details either. I know like back when it was one yeah. shift. I know they did um, like in 2020. I think it was, um, yeah. but I haven't been following it as closely since then. To be honest with you, you know, I I kind of yeah. keep track on you know Troy Teslake and there's a couple other folks who are um, like Money Moneyball. I think yeah. is the other guy who who does a lot of Chinese reporting. Uh, yeah. But I'm not as as well versed on the details, but um, yeah, seems like it was a relatively I mean, strong month when you kind of consider the in, amount yeah. of, of downtime that there, that there was. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think their Chinese factories are going to continue to do really well, and I think Troy Test likes you know above the you know I think he's in the 320s or three or close to 330 for delivery expectations for this quarter, and um, the you know. Wall Street analysts are predicting like 315,000 or something like that. So, you know, there should be a little bit of a beat, but, you know, I don't think the beat's going to be like it was last quarter where, what was it? The Wall Street analysts were predicting like 265 or something or 270, and then it was 310,000. So it was like a big beat. It was like, you know, 20, almost a 20% beat. And uh, so this time it might be like a 5% beat, you know, and so you got to wonder, you know, people are getting used to Tesla beating by a lot. Like when it only beats by 5%, is that going to be good news or bad news for the stock itself? So, you know, short-term movements, it's just, I wouldn't be buying short-term options on the delivery numbers for April. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not sure the stock's going to tank, but you know, I, you know, I wouldn't be uh, buying on, on rumors of Tesla beating by, you know, five or 7% versus what wall street expects for, for delivery numbers. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't either. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of surprised. I don't know if you saw the note from uh, Trip Chowdhury that, that came out. I think it was yesterday, basically about the saying plaid deliveries and stuff too. Yeah, the the plaid. He said the the plaid deliveries would be up about fifteen percent. But you know, it sounds like you know they were doing some digging at the at the plants, and sounds like he he basically said that he expects Q one to be massive. So. I don't know. I, I'm kind of with you. I he don't says it every quarter, though. That guy says it every quarter, no matter what. Yeah, true. We're trying to get him on our channel, actually, as like a Wall Street analyst. That's like uber bull just to, you know, we haven't seen him on any other channel, YouTube channels, really. So it'd be cool to get him on here and chat with him. But uh, yeah, yeah if, if anyone's got a, uh, got a contact with him, we'd, we'd love to, to try to get him on here to kind of explain some of this stuff. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like, all right, well, I, I don't think, you know, Model S Plaid, even if they were like doubled, I don't think that really moves the needle of, of, on the stock in terms of like, um, you know, a huge earnings beat per se. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to take a, a little bit of a grain of salt with Q, Q1 in particular, especially since um Zach was, I, I think, kind of a little over the top with the warnings of some of the short-term supply chain issues they were seeing. So um, mm. I'm, I'm definitely expecting gross margins to come down a little bit sequentially. Um, but uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how Q1 goes. Yeah, but me too. The, the good news is like Tesla's trading at such a low like PE multiple now that it's like, I, in my mind, it's already like relatively well baked into it. So um, yeah, it's it's kind of a question in my mind of, of how how do they ramp from here and and. You know what? What do the earnings look like in Q3 and Q4? Because I think that's going to change a lot of analyst expectations once you kind of get some more normalized, you know, uh, gross margin numbers in yeah. there. And, and there's probably going to be a little bit more clarity around, you know, full self driving by that point as well. Yeah, and this all, is, you know, we have to. We're sort of assuming that there's stability in the macro markets, you know, and uh, sometime soon. I mean, usually the macro markets don't aren't this unstable for this long. Usually, it's even in the COVID crash. There was like a really quick drop that lasted like a month or two or a month and lots of volatility. And then, you know, there was a V-shaped recovery and markets were off and, and just going up and stable, but in a stable way, you know, for, for the most part. So this is, I feel like this has been going on since December, this kind of instability, you know, two or three months straight. It's pretty hard to stomach, but um, you got to think it can't last forever. Maybe the Fed meets later this month and maybe, you know, you got to think either the Either the market gets used to the, um, you know, conflict between Putin and Ukraine, or there's some kind of resolution started between them that, you know, within a month, you'd think that the, the macro markets are going to be stable again. And uh, and then fundamentals will really dictate the price movement of stocks again. Yeah, you know, I, the uh, it kind of reminds me of something the, the spot gamma guy said uh, a while ago, I think it was actually that. You know, with all the the kind of economic indicators that he was looking at, you know, he he basically didn't see any sort of 
short-term catalyst until the March FOMC meeting, which is next Thursday. Um, mm. So you've got that FOMC meeting on Thursday and then a big options expiration day on the Friday after that, uh, on the 18th. So that was uh, a week that he flagged uh, like a month ago um, as kind of being like the the next potential, you know, macro catalyst that, that he could see. Um, so that's something, you know, I'm kind of curious to see how that does pan out. Um, you, you've seen certainly a lot more kind of bearish sentiment in the market in, in the last, you know, three months, as you said, but um, it could be a good opportunity um, if, if we get some good notes out of that FOMC meeting coupled with a, you know, a nice options expiration. That might be the thing that could finally tip this into a bull market. Obviously not expiration, <laughs> expiration. This is where my, my lack of sleep is coming in. Obviously not investment advice, but um, that's, that's certainly a date that uh, I'm going to be watching pretty closely. Yeah, yeah. So was there anything, I mean, anything else on our hit? I know we're going to do a lot of Q&A today, but was there anything else we wanted to bring up or talk about with other stocks or, you know, Tesla or anything? And, you know, anything you think of, Matt, or should we just go to the Q&A? Yeah, I mean, macro is the, the, the clear driving factor right now. I mean, we can yeah, we can talk story. to, you know, some specifics around any of the stocks, but I think we should probably just uh, open it up to some Q&A. Okay. All right. First question is from... Beer Geeks CA on Twitter. Do you think Tesla will put a gigafactory in Canada for the next North American one? I don't think so. I mean, Canada is a big, you know, territorial country, but population-wise, economy-wise, it's 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 not even as big as California. Uh, I think it's much smaller. I think, and I don't know, much smaller, but it's it's significantly smaller than California, is my understanding. So. You know, I, I don't, I don't see that happening um, unless Canadian, you know, uh, you know, governments tried to really woo, you know, Elon and Tesla somehow. I just don't see that effort being taken by Canadian governments either. I haven't heard of that, but if they did, possibly. But uh, I just don't, I don't see it otherwise. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you certainly don't have like a a cost advantage necessarily, you know, with with the labor. I mean, it, it's. Um... I think roughly comparable to like, you know, nor the U.S. Uh, cost of labor, at least, you know, uh, union labor in the north. So uh, I think generally speaking, the the non-union labor has been a little bit you know cheaper, which is why you see a lot of the international companies kind of in the south of, of the United States. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the other factor I'd consider here is, is you know, how critical Elon's been of the Canadian government, uh, you know, Trudeau hmm. in particular. Um, yeah. Maybe if that, you know, government changed, I could, I could see that him being a little bit more open to it. But um, he's been like, like he had that tweet comparing Trudeau to, to Hitler. So, yeah, you know, I'm not sure. Is that, that Canada that friendly terms of Biden or Trudeau now at this point, calling yeah. Biden a, a wet sock puppet and Trudeau. <laughs> I don't know. He's, yeah. So he's not making friends with the politicians in North America very well. Yeah. Or yeah. Russia or. Like, yeah. Or Russia. Maybe, yeah. Maybe Ukraine's the next factory no, probably not but um yeah yeah i don't know i do, I do think there it's important to kind of keep in mind the, the political um aspects so i mean he clearly takes that stuff very seriously he hates red tape and that's why he, he moved the headquarters to texas and um so i think anywhere that he does move it would have to be you know at a, at a place that's very business like pro-business and business friendly yeah Next question from Martin Muldoon. Question, will Rocket Lab and SpaceX benefit from the turmoil in Russia, given that no one will want to work with them? I was just thinking about that, too. I do think Rocket Lab will and SpaceX will both benefit. I, I do think so. I think, uh, you know, there's been some, you know, there, there was that comment by the head of the Russian space agency about, you know, threatening to let ISS fall to Earth or if they're, you know, sanctions against Russia, you know, and there's other other stuff I've seen you know, dug up on that guy that make, make their ethics very questionable. And uh, one of the great things I think you see about the, the, um, you know, the world kind of uniting, you know, in a non-military way is you just saw like McDonald's say, we're shutting down all our, our stores in Russia, virtually all our stores. At first I saw the headline, 850 McDonald's is shutting down in Russia. And I was wondering like, Hmm, does McDonald's have like 10,000 stores in Russia? Is this like just 5% or 8% of their stores? Or, or so I looked it up and they actually have like 850. So they're virtually shutting all their stores in Russia, which is, uh, is pretty good. So 
I think, um, you know, you're going to see that in a lot of businesses uh, and, and space too. And, and maybe you'll see a lot less of uh, worldwide businesses trying to do something in space, rely on anything Russian, you know, whether it's governments or, uh, or com- private companies, uh, they'll just go right to SpaceX and Rocket Lab. Um, so that's, that's my thought. I think they'll both benefit, but it might take a little while to play out a year or two to kind of notice it. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you actually saw that with the the OneWeb um, space constellation, which was going to be a competitor to um, to Starlink. They actually had a launch ready to go on Soyuz rocket, so they had all their satellites there, and now they're stranded. Like they've lost their payload because Russia's not launching them, and they can't get them back. Um, no, at no. least it's it's unclear how they will get those back. So like that may be the death knell for for OneWeb, uh, which was in a little bit of a tenuous situation to begin with. Um, so you've seen this I, I think like obviously the government sanctions have hurt um but also the kind of the, the expense of the soyuz and how, like how ancient that technology is like that doesn't help uh mm-hmm. and, and then you've got private corporations um like kind of piling on to the we're not going to do business with this dictator um you know kind of um like social social justice in a good way right like you know mm-hmm. i think social justice can have a negative connotation but here i think it's actually you know a, a good thing uh where, where you've got people just being a little bit more cognizant of wanting to send their dollars or spend their dollars in a way that's uh not going to benefit you know like autocrats who who are you know doing these terrible human rights abuses so um yeah. it, it's a it reminds me a little bit of COVID, honestly where you had you know a trend that probably would have happened anyways um you know uh, which was accelerated by this macro event. Uh, so you saw a lot of growth companies like Zoom, for example, that accelerated a lot of companies' use of uh, of Zoom to to do virtual meetings. And I think you may have a similar situation play out here, where a lot of uh, space companies were trying to kind of wean themselves off of Soyuz and, and Russian launch services. And this may be just the the accelerant needed to yeah. um, really benefit uh, new emergent players. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick, I see a question from Evan Glansman in the chat. It's about Roblox. Roblox now has a market cap of around 25 billion. Is there a certain level that you would consider converting some shares to leaps? Or would that make more sense with a company with, with a more predictable PE outlook? Um, that's a great question, Evan. You know, we've talked about that. We've thought about that. And if if this was just like a, I think if it, was, if it wasn't a macro market, like revaluation of all the growth tech stocks, if it was just like a, a Roblox blip um, that, you know, other growth tech stocks were doing well, but Roblox took a big hit for some, you know, uh, hit piece against, you know, that, that recently came out against, uh, you know, kids being, uh, you know, uh, preyed upon and the Roblox community, but where kids are preyed upon everywhere in internet communities. But if it was something like that, then I would say we, I would be more likely to do that. But because it's like an entire macro market revaluation, going on. I don't know when that macro market valuation comes back to tech stocks, like the tide swings back to tech stocks in general. I think Roblox is a great company. We're still holding the stock and, you know, I think long-term it's great, but the leaps is only like a one or two year time frame. And I just, I'm not confident that, you know, we've seen this macro market volatility already last like three or four months. I, I, I could see, you know, it's possible the macro market adjusts and growth tech stocks come in favor in six months or, or, or less from now. Or, or, But it's also possible that it could take a few years until, you know, macro markets swing back towards tech and growth stocks that don't really have a PE yet, like you said in your the second part of your question. And people start speculating on on things like Roblox or, or InsureTech like Lemonade. So some of the, the long-term call options on these, these growth tech stocks that we still believe in strongly, but could take years to play out. Even Rocket Lab, you know, they're, they're not really, these companies that don't have an earnings yet, um, I'm not sure buying long-term options is a good idea at this time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what's the, what's the short-term catalyst? I mean, you know, at least for me, when, when I started doing leaps with Tesla, it was because I was kind of convinced that the market had the PE, the forward, you know, well, the forward earnings wrong. So you, mm-hmm. even assuming like a, a very low PE, you know, I thought there'd be a, a pretty significant revaluation of Tesla. Um, with with Roblox, we're not at that point yet. And so, you know, what is the, the near-term catalyst that will uh, say double the stock in the next, you know, two to three years. Um, I'm not clear that there is necessarily one. And also another consideration is just, you know, implied volatility is, is pretty high right now. 
So it may be better, you know, let's say there's a, you know, a favorable outcome or a conclusion of this war uh, and better clarity around macro in, in say, you know, six months time. Um, my sense is implied volatility may have come down by that time. Uh, then you've got a little bit less data decay to worry about because you've waited six months and then maybe, I'm not saying to do this, but it could be a better time then if we see mm -hmm. some kind of solid user metrics or something like that, that gives us, you know, confidence that, uh, you know, that the stock is undervalued and, and that the market will realize that in a short amount of time. Um, yeah. so for that reason, I, I, I prefer the equity right now, um, cause, cause there's not necessarily that, that short term catalyst. Yeah. And we could be wrong. This could be the absolute best time to buy the yep. long-term collaborations. I don't know. It could be, but it's just too risky for us right now. Too much of a flip of the coin to, to really feel comfortable one way or the other on it. So, uh, next question. Sorry. Uh, let's see from Scott opt injuries on Twitter with money likely to be put into oil infrastructure to compensate for Russian oil. Will this slow adoption of renewables in North America? Matt, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, so there's, it's not going to be easy to kind of change opinion around, you know, oil overnight. Um, a lot of ESG funds, you just won't even invest in, in these assets. A lot of banks um, won't even work to provide financing for a project like this. So typically there's a higher cost of capital for, uh, you know, oil and gas deals. Um, so in my mind, they're, they're kind of separate markets. I mean, the, the the kind of universe of financiers that will pay for you know oil and gas extraction is is different than the universe of financiers and frankly developers that are going to be putting in renewables. Um, you know, I, I think you you need to differentiate between um, what's called the exploration and production or E and P side of the energy business. Um, and that's what Elon is saying needs the, like the, the investment right now. And we need to, you know, do what we can to extract more from existing, you know, uh, wells and, and resources versus, uh, like kind of new steel on the ground for plants, which will create electricity. Um, so I don't think anything's going to slow down renewables. Honestly, they, they just make sense financially. And, and if, if commodity prices are going up and electricity prices are going to go up, that's going to make the economics of renewables by default look even better. Because, you know, if, if you were expecting to get, you know, $20 a megawatt hour wind and then macro events force that to be, you know, $45 or $50 per megawatt hour, all, people are going to be developing as many wind projects as possible um, and, and solar projects as possible in order to take advantage of this, this kind of unique time frame that we're in. Um, and frankly, the industry is already kind of at capacity. Um, you know, I, I, it's just th these are very intensive projects. I mean, I was I was touring a 525 megawatt wind farm in Texas that was under construction. And it was like wow. a crew of thousands of people. Uh, there were 191 turbines, I think it was. Um, wow. And you've got like you've got to dig these foundations that are like many stories deep and like 30 meters across. And you've got to fill it with rebar and you've got to like send tons of, of concrete trucks to, to fill in each of these foundations. And then you got to, you know, bring in the, you know, the, the, the tubes and the nacelles and all the blades. And it's, it's like a supply chain logistics nightmare. Like the guy that was overseeing wow. it was just like, I'm never going to do a project like this again. It's just, it's so hard <laughs> to find good contractors. It's so hard to kind of coordinate this. So it's a heavy lift um, to, to do this work. And there's, you know, the industry is growing like crazy. Um, and it's, it's going to continue to grow like crazy. I don't think, I don't see anything slowing that down. Good answer. All right. From just wandering, do you guys think Tesla getting an investment ratings upgrade could prove to be a near-term catalyst since it will open up the stock to more institutions adding? <clears throat> I do think it could be a medium term catalyst. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced there's going to be an S investment ratings upgrade in the next like month or two months or even three months. <clears throat> but I do think at some it would be great if it happened soon. But um, at some point it will happen. And when it does happen, I think it does kind of open the door for a new set of institutional investors to come into Tesla. I'm not sure they're all going to rush to the floodgates immediately. But I do think kind of like the the rising momentum of investing in Tesla, you know, the, the theme of investing in Tesla will, will become stronger amongst institutional investors, you know, uh, soon after, you know, it's already becoming stronger now than it was like three years, four years ago. Right. But now that's part of the S and P index, especially, but, you know, once it gets to higher investment grading 
rating out it'll margin it'll move it up marginally i'm just not sure how much if it's going to be super meaningful or just like marginal somewhere in between is my guess where you know it's just a nice headwind or tailwind i guess a nice tailwind for uh tesla stock to continue it's it's rise to you know what we think will be the biggest company in the world by the end of the decade yeah i, I agree I, yeah i think it'll be a small catalyst if, if any but um I think there's much bigger catalysts on the road. I mean, I, I, I frankly can't wait to to see version 11 of, of FSD beta, which sounds like it's getting delayed again. But uh, mm. that's a much bigger deal for the stock price in my mind than than you know um, uh, the the credit rating. Although I th I do think it will take the market a long time to digest that good news <laughs> if it is in fact good news. Yeah. From. Duhamel18A on Twitter. What's your take on the solar situation with Tesla? Storage seems to be growing, but solar is disappointing. Mm. Matt, do you have any thoughts on their solar? I mean, it's, it's a commoditized business yeah. overall, right? But they have, I guess they're trying to really prioritize the solar roofs, but it's been a little they, bit tougher than they thought. Yeah, it's been, it's been uh, less good than I thought it would be for sure. Um, you know, like solar roof, I was super bullish on, on solar roof when, when it came out, um, you know, I, I did some math and, you know, found it had like a, a very reasonable internal rate of return as a residential owner, you know, even in a non sunny state like Michigan. Um, but since then they've really struggled with kind of rolling it out and with, um, producing and installing it in, in, uh, a profitable manner. Um, I think it's it's clearly kind of dragged down the profitability of their energy business overall. Um, but you got to keep in mind that they're trying to scale it. Um, so like Elon has said in the past that, you know, they're they're trying to scale this to 10,000 and eventually 20,000 roofs per week. They're, they're nowhere near that right now. <clears throat> Excuse me right now. Uh, but but the goal is clearly to try to figure out what are the, the best techniques and installation practices in order to um, you know, minimize the amount of boots on the ground and number of man hours uh, going towards each installation. So in my mind, they're still very much in that phase of like the, 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 the slow part of the S curve. So if you think of like where the, the Model 3 ramp was, that was a dreadfully painful process and it took a lot longer than, than people thought it would take. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not concerned about it yet, um, especially since it's not a bet the company situation. Um, but if they don't, figure it out eventually, then I will be, you know, a little bit concerned that, you know, this whole solar roof could be, it has the potential to be a, just an absolute flop in my mind. Um, mm. And just on a, on a personal note, I've been really wanting to put on a solar roof uh, for a long time at, at my house. Um, <laughs> like I got a quote uh, just like two weeks ago or something like that. And the, and the quote had like more than doubled from when I initially got the quote. Um, mm. Then there was like a $26,000 fee because I'm not in, in their territory. Um, mm. so I ended up just getting a, a normal roof cause I was like, well, that's, I need a new roof now and I can't really afford to wait five years and kind of hope they figure this out. So, uh, yeah, a little bit disappointing, you know, both from the business side, but also just yeah. on the, the personal side. Well, I'll tell you How from firsthand you experience, the roof is an incredible product. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it looks beautiful. It takes in a ton of energy into my power walls for me, you know, and, uh, it's it's just a great product you know it's like you, if and when i sell my house i know it's going to be an asset and appreciate the house's value it won't be you know a concern or a hesitation like solar panels might be you know so right um you know from that perspective i think it's an absolute incredible product now can they you know deliver it and install it in a way that that uh, makes sense. That's profitable for them, and that you know customers are willing to pay. That's that's what they're trying to figure out, I guess. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> question from Martin Muldoon again. When when someone asks the age old question, where do you think EVs get their power from? How do you answer it, Matt? That's for you, Matt. Yeah, this is this is one of the most annoying questions, and I know Martin isn't asking an annoying question. He's saying, how do you respond to this annoying question? But um yeah it's <laughs> what's like, a simple like elevator response to a five-year-old because i get this question too and i just ended up going or talking to myself in circles probably but so how there's do you answer it? the there, there's probably two simple answers and i don't know i haven't really practiced it so uh one would be uh just that you the simple answer is you can you have the option to power it directly from the sun if you have solar panels 
you can convert that electricity directly to fuel for your car, which is, you know, obviously not possible for an ICE vehicle. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one just very simple answer. Um, the more maybe nuanced okay. answer, but still somewhat simple is just that, you know, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a cleaner option. Um, even if you're generating from dirty sources or from a grid that relies heavily on say coal, um, all the studies that have been done on this question very clearly indicate that it's a, it's a cleaner, uh, overall, um, you know, per, per mile driven, even, even if you incorporate tail, like, um, full life cycle, um, emissions. So like the EVs are slightly more, um, polluting to build than a nice vehicle is, for example. But if you take all that into consideration, even in a dirty grid, um, then you're still better off than driving a nice vehicle. But the thing that is continuously happening, and, and, and you know, I saw this during my entire career in the energy side, is that the grid, the grid gets just a little bit cleaner every single year. So you, know, you have some amount of coal retirements each year, and you're adding more wind and solar each year. And so that, that trend is going to continue to happen because it's driven by economics. Um, and so over time, you, you can, you can run the math now and say, okay, with today's current grid, even in let's chip, pick the worst grid in the United States, I don't know which one it is, but people have done this math. It's, uh, it's cleaner than, uh, a nice vehicle and it's going that, that Delta between a nice vehicle and, you know, the, the cleaner grid, say five years from now is only going to increase over time. Great answer. So I, right. I hope that helps. Now. It's such an annoying question because it was like a legitimate question 10 years ago. And it's been like so thoroughly debunked that it's like people who are asking it just like haven't done their homework. So we've still got a ways to go of, of I think, educating people of the benefits of, of EVs. Mm -hmm. From Brett A. Goldstein on Twitter. Oh, hi, Brett, my buddy. Uh, what trades did you look at this past year and not take action on? Winners or losers? What did you learn from them? Oh, that's a... Great question. Um, I mean, I think Matt and I have talked about a number of like growth tech stocks uh, and even other value stocks occasionally. But for me, I remember I was talking uh, about Matterport a while ago. I really love their technology. I think they have a real stranglehold on this new kind of business of using, you know, mapping 3D home or, you know, mapping 3D environment indoor environments into a 3d world they have like the vast majority of that market by far you know and and they do a really good job with it and you know they were trading around like 25 i think we i think i you know i bought some for a short time it's over like 35 for a quick before the market started crashing but i'm i'm glad we didn't really go heavy on that and really we didn't take such a deep dive where we built conviction to go heavy on that because now it's at seven dollars i'm looking at it i'm like wow went from like $35 to $7, but maybe that's a good time. If I still believe in it, I should consider, uh, at least in my personal account, maybe buying some Matterport. Um, I know we looked, we talked and, and we talk about on here sometimes Coinbase um, and Zoom, you know, we, we touched on and dabbled on, but we haven't really gone heavy on those uh, as we almost did a couple of times, I think. Um, so those have worked out. I mean, almost all the tech and growth, almost all stocks are down. So you're kind of happy that, you know, but the stocks we are long on like Lemonade, Roblox, even Rocket Lab, they're all down too, you know, and Tesla. Um, but, you know, some of them to a lesser degree than something like Matterport, for example. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I would say. And, and uh, it, it's, it's uh, you know, it's reassuring to know that some, you know, I made some good decisions by staying away from some stocks and, and, and not, you know, when I look at all our current stocks and they're down, some of the stocks we almost bought are down a lot more. What do you think, Matt? Yeah. The, the other thing that came to mind of, you know, something we didn't do that I wish we would have done in, in retrospect is, uh, you know, we, we, we took a pretty deep dive into hedging some of our, of our gains around like the November, December timeframe, um, which, you know, of course, when the market just absolutely tanked after that would have been, you know, great to do in retrospect, but um, it's it's very hard to to hedge gains in either a tax efficient manner or in a capital efficient manner. So it's like you either have to take some chips off the table or you have to trigger some some short term gains, which which can both of which can be very costly. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we ended up taking a pretty deep dive into that and ultimately decided not to. And it, of course, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. wish we, you know, sold everything and bought puts, right? But 
you know, yeah, that was, yeah. it was it was not clear at all that that we had the you know kind of um, uh, you know macro panic uh, and an absolute like just dump that um, you know we we were or that the market ended up taking that was not at all kind of an expectation in yeah. uh, you know in early December. So you know, I I I guess I you know I guess in terms of what we learned from it, it's it's okay. We we Emmett and I have been talking a lot um, kind of offline about um how how to be a little bit more um structured in you know hedging after gains and and maybe like adding after some losses so that's something that i think yeah i've taken away from the, from that experience is you know be a yeah. little bit more willing to um um buy when it's painful and to to sell when everything looks happy yeah yeah and we've shorted a few things uh successfully and a few things at the wrong time um so yeah, I mean, things we've you know, there's things we've wanted to short that we didn't, and we wish we we did, obviously too. But uh, you know, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Well, one funny note on there too. Uh, I, I mentioned just like two weeks ago. I think uh, I thought like Bed Bath and Beyond was a, a good short target potentially, and then like <laughs> just this week was who's the guy? Uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but. Um, the guy from GameStop, I think it was, uh, what, Ryan Cohen. Yeah. He Ryan announced Cohen, he's, yeah. Like a, he's like he's on the getting all involved in Bed Bath and Beyond and they, they spiked like 30% in a day. And so I'm like, okay, I'm really glad we didn't touch that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 I saw, I saw that news. I was like, Oh, good thing we didn't short that one. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, last question. One more question. Um, let's see. This is from J60931656 on Twitter. Do you plan on getting more into the genomics sector now than the CRISPR CAS seven CRISPR CAS nine patent has been settled? So this kind of in a, in a way relates. There's so many people pitch us all these stock ideas, like oh, what about this stock, this stock? There's been a lot of like CRISPR genomics stocks thrown our way, and you know it's hard to. I just that's not my specialty. You know, like I know so many people are excited about genomics stocks, and we, we were tempted to go into some, but we just didn't. We just don't have the expertise to really understand that business space to to be confident or have conviction ourselves personally and why we think those businesses are going to be worth so much and they, they might very well be but you know investing in like medical technologies you know is certainly is far from my specialty um so yeah i mean i just don't know about the you know i know kathy wood and arc investment are big on and i you know i i have a level of trust in their and, and there's other investors I respect, but at the end of the day, I really personally have to have conviction to invest in a name. I just don't know if I have the capability to get conviction on, on the, you know, biotech space. What, do you, what about you, Matt? Yeah. You know, when, when I was uh, doing investment banking a, a number of years ago, I, I kind of split my time between the industrial side and the med tech side and our med tech practice really specialized in um, orthopedics. Um, so, it, it, I spent so much time kind of diving into that, speaking with doctors, kind of understanding what they're doing from like the actual surgeries that they perform and what tools are they using and why are they choosing those tools? <laughs> and then what's the FDA uh, approval process for like the Pfizer's and the J&J's of the world to go through that. And it took like a long time of studying to get to the point where I, I felt like I had a good baseline knowledge, even just to kind of talk about orthopedics in an, in, uh, an intelligent way. And, and I just don't feel that I have that knowledge base even close to it on, on what I think is, is a, frankly, a more complex field um, of, yeah. of genomics. And so I think the technology is more complicated and the business models are um, unproven at this point. I mean, I think there, there's incredible reasons to be optimistic. And frankly, I am, but I'm optimistic in like a vague way, not in a way that yes, I vague. feel I can, I can yeah. you know. Uh, effectively manage people's funds by choosing who the winners and the losers in this emerging highly technical space are. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I think our, our, it's not like Tesla, for example, like you can, yeah. or lemonade insurance, like you can understand the marketplace and the incentive structures around it to some degree, you know, you know, you put your place yourself in the shoes of virtually all the participants in the Tesla, you know, uh, ecosystem of, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, whether it's competitors or Tesla decision makers or consumers or regulators, even like we we've done enough research, we can understand that space, but to understand the genomics, you know, space is just, you know, that, that's like a career worth of work and that's just not a career, you know, what we've done. 
Yeah, you know, and I've, I've done a bit of a dive on Invitae, and I, I, I'm like somewhat optimistic about them. But again, it's it's um, you don't know what you don't know, and and I already know that there's very little that I do, I do know within that space. Yeah. So, you know, I think especially when, when we're managing other people's money, we want to feel that we have a very solid uh, understanding of the investments that we're choosing and why. And you know, like kind of vague optimism around a, a generic trend, I don't, I don't think is a good enough reason to to invest in a significant reason. But uh, yeah, I do think it, I am optimistic about it in general, and and I've played around in my personal account a little bit in this space. But uh, it's, I mean, it's been all these names have been hit really hard in the last you know year or so. Yeah, and one one last question I see in the chat, I just want to answer real quick is it's from uh, the cousin of. Uh, the, the person, the lawyer who helped us set up our, our, our fund, it sounds like, and he says, is there a reason you have a $500,000 minimum investment in your fund? I found out that it, that's his cousin's fund, their law firm that set up our fund. Yeah, there is, we've talked about this in the past. Um, you know, we just don't have a ton of, uh, w w the way we set up the fund is we're only allowed to take on 99 investors. And, you know, before we get to that, level we can set up another kind of master feeder fund structure where it would open the door for a thousand more investors or whatnot but at the same time it's just it, it takes up a lot of bandwidth uh, there's been a lot of interest from you know lots of people under five hundred thousand um wanting to invest but uh we want to talk to we want to get to know each and every one of our investors and you know we have lots of uh investors already and we've gotten to know them all which is great but we just decided that's sort of the minimum for Matt and I to, you know, use our bandwidth for that portion of our time allotment versus researching stocks or making portfolio decisions or having a more of a balanced life or whatnot. If we took on a bunch of a hundred thousand dollars, 200,000, we'd have 10 times as many investors. Obviously the average investment size would be much smaller, but we just wouldn't have time to dedicate all of that. And, and it's just not, uh, we just felt 500,000 was the right mark time at some point in the future we may set up an etf or something um and that obviously would not have any limit on on the investment size so all right uh well that's it for this week and uh thanks everyone we'll be on next week at the normal time and uh we'll talk we'll talk then thanks everyone all right